there is. Simply, absolutely, nothing else on earth that can ever begin to compare with truly knowing, truly and legitimately knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection in order that we might each personally experience the resurrection from the dead to live forever in heaven. It's just what the Apostle Paul told us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 21. There's simply and absolutely nothing else on earth that can ever begin to compare with legitimately, legitimately, according to the scriptures, knowing that you have eternal life. Just as the Apostle John wrote and told us about in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. There's nothing that compares with that, nothing. Relative to that, last Sunday, we began to examine one of the greatest and most incredible blessings of truly knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection that there is. In the first of what has now become three <laughs> sermons, exploring exactly what happens when Jesus attends a funeral. Last week we discussed the attendance of Jesus at the funeral of the widow of Nain's only son in Luke 7 and of Jairus' only daughter in Luke 8. And this morning, a sermon entitled Four Funerals and Your Funeral Part 2, we're going to explore a number of exciting and encouraging everyday things, everyday things that we can benefit from as we explore the third biblically recorded funeral that Jesus attended. Probably the second best known of all of them. Please turn to me in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 11. The Gospel of John chapter 11. As we discuss Jesus at the funeral of Lazarus. Actually, it's, I use the term funeral in a very general term. I mean, by the time Jesus gets there, he's already dead and been in the tomb. John 11, gonna be right here all morning long. Verses one and two. So many wonderful truths that we can benefit from on an everyday basis in this story, this actual historical event. John 11, one and two, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. You'll notice the text says it was a certain man Little more than that, this certain man, as we're going to see in the rest of the text, was a very, very dear and loved friend of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as his sisters Mary and Martha were. The name Lazarus, kind of ironically in light of this account, or at least the beginning of it, the name Lazarus literally means God is my help. God is my help. And it, it does seem to be a, a, a bit of an irony or a contradiction because Lazarus dies, at least in the beginning of the story. And you know, that's one of those truths that we need to stop and consider and benefit from, and that's this. 
even those who are closest to Jesus Christ himself are not immune from hurt, pain, heartache, temptation, trials, sickness, struggles, trouble. They're not. In fact, it seems more often than not that once one becomes a Christian or once one begins to get closer to Jesus, they suffer some increased levels of these things for a variety of good and godly reasons. Remember the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Remember his thorn in the flesh that he talked about there? In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10? It was for a good and godly purpose, wasn't it, according to God? He struggled with it. He prayed about it. What about what the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, when he talked about fiery trials and how they're necessary? What about, what about Job? What about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, as we're about to see? Verse 2, make no mistake about exactly who Lazarus and his sisters were. Jesus was so close to them. They had a wonderful relationship. They had a close-knit relationship. In fact, if we were to go on and look in chapter 12 of John, verses 1 through 8, we would see that relationship reflected there. They were familiar with one another. They were friends and more. Very, very dear friends. Verse 3, therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now I want you to notice what they said, but also want you to notice what they didn't say. Another good lesson for us. They did not tell Jesus what to do about it. They simply trusted him to take care of it. Do you see that? He whom you love is sick. They didn't, that's what they told him. They didn't tell him what to do about it. They trusted him take care of it. They trusted in three things. Number one, he was Lord. Number two, he loved Lazarus. And number three, he loved them. And that was enough. That was enough. The word love here is phileo. It's that warm, personal, tender affection like Philadelphia's name for the city of brotherly love, phileo. But what I want you to understand is that Jesus' love for them was not limited to phileo, some warm, tender, brotherly love. It was deeper than that. Look in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. The, the text is very clear. He loved all three of them. And the word love here is a different word. This is that agape love. This is the deepest, most self-sacrificial, most intense, and completely committed love there is. Let me give you three examples of where this word agape occurs elsewhere in the scripture, and you'll see just what an incredible intense love this is. In John 17, 26, this same word is used to describe the love which God has always had for his son, Jesus Christ. That's pretty intense love, ain't it? The deepest. It's also used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's that same agape love. That's incredible, intense love. 
It's also used in 1 John 4, 8 to describe the very essence and nature of God himself when it says, God is love. It's that same word, love, that is used in verse 5 where it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I want you to make no mistake about this. As we read what happens to them, I want you to remember how deeply Jesus loved them. Nothing that happens here is because of a lack of love for them on Jesus' part. It's crucial you remember throughout this account, no matter what you see or hear or read or study, Jesus loved them. And in fact, get this, that love was the very reason they had to suffer through some of the things they did, was because he loved them so much. Say, that doesn't make sense. Makes perfect sense as we continue on, you'll see. Verse 4, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, from verse 3, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus, don't miss this, Jesus knew what they did not. That's crucial. It's crucial for us. When we struggle with things, it's crucial for us to remember. Jesus knows what we do not. It's always that way. And he knew here. And he said, this sickness is not unto death. Now, it might be some, some might say who are biblical critics, well, Jesus said it wasn't unto death and he dies. Listen, when Jesus said this sickness is not unto death, he was letting them know, look, people, this is not about death. This is not going to result in death. This is not going to end in death. Death isn't the purpose of the point of, of this thing with Lazarus. It isn't. It's not the be-all and end-all. It's not the purpose of the point or the point. There is a purpose, but death ain't it. There is a point, but death ain't it. And he's trying to let them know that. Remember, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. That's why you and I must walk by faith and not by sight. We must, when we don't understand everything that's going on and it doesn't look like the same thing it looks like to God, we must be willing to walk by faith and not by sight to trust that he loves us. Look what he did for us on the cross to understand that he knows what he's doing even when we don't. God's whole point and purpose for allowing this illness and the death of Lazarus we see in the latter part of verse 4. It's for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That was the reason. That was the purpose. That was the point. God's going to be glorified to us, just like the boy born blind in John 9, 1 through 3. Remember what the disciples said there? Was it that this man sinned or, or his parents sinned? And Jesus' basic response is, neither one. The whole reason for this is so that I can show you something incredible about God. Similar point here. Listen. Sometimes, sometimes, not all times, but sometimes, our suffering and our struggles is simply God allowing things to happen to set the stage for something incredible to happen in our lives. 
Sometimes that's what our struggles are. Was that it with Job? Did he allow certain things? And in the end, Job was blessed more than at the beginning. Is that right? Is that the way the story goes? Did I misread that? This means yes, this means no. Y'all with me this morning? Okay, I can't see you folks, but you know. Sometimes our struggles, it, we gotta get this. They're not because we're being punished, but because we're being prepared. Did you get that? They're not because we're being punished. They're because we're being prepared to see the glory of God at work in our lives. And, and at other times, our suffering is so that God can prove how much faith he has in us, Job 1 and verse 8. Or so that our faith can be matured and purified, James 1, 2 through 4, and as we've mentioned, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. Sometimes our struggles are allowed so that we can better sympathize with and give comfort to others later on who are struggling with the same thing. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Sometimes our struggles are truly just God setting the stage to show us something incredible, which otherwise he couldn't. That's the case with Lazarus and his sisters. Otherwise, otherwise, verse 6 doesn't make any sense. If that's not, if what I just said is not true, then verse 6 doesn't make any sense. Verse 6. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. <laughs> where Jesus truly loved them, this verse on the surface doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, I want you to really think about this. It, it's a square peg in a round hole. It, it's a big balloon in a small porcupine den. It, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And here's why. Listen, when somebody you deeply love desperately needs you there, and you know they need you, what's the typical response? <laughs> you drop everything and go, right? That's usual. If it's your kids, if it's somebody you dearly love, and they desperately need you. If you agape love them, what do you do? You drop everything and you go. But Jesus doesn't. He waits. Two more days. Then tell us what he's doing. Apparently it wasn't anything important enough for the spirit to have written down. He waits two more days for no physically apparent reason. No explanation at that point. And then he's going to make a journey there that probably took a couple of days, around 30 miles, on foot. All, and we don't know by the time he got the news that Lazarus was sick, if, how long it had it taken for that news to reach him? And he gets that news, and, and then he waits two days, and then he travels at least a couple of days, all while the one he loved was dying. And, and have you ever thought of this? Furthermore, couldn't Jesus have just simply raised Lazarus? Couldn't he have gotten Lazarus better from a distance? Could he have done that? He'd already done it in chapter 4 of John with the nobleman's son. John chapter 4, verses 46 through 53, he's already raised from a distance, a sick person, so he could have done that. So here's the question. Has God ever kept you waiting? Has God ever kept you waiting? Why are you struggling with something? Why are you suffering with something? Why are you trying to understand something? Why are you in pain? Has God ever kept you waiting while you were going through something with no earthly explanation at the time as to why? Has he? 
and, and, and as the situation seems more and more dire, there's still no response from God. Has he ever done that to you? He did it to these people he loved, at least initially. Maybe you're going through it right now. And if you are, I want you to think about Mary and Martha. I want you to think about them sitting by their dying brother. I don't know how many hours or days they were there, but, but just consider them sitting by his bedside as he's dying and, and, and there's no Jesus. And, and you know if Jesus was here, he could fix this, but there's no Jesus. There's no word, there's no nothing. That brings us to one of the most difficult but yet most dependable patterns in all of scripture, and here it is. Delay by deity in granting a favor is not a denial of it. Often, it is to provide occasion for a greater blessing. Not infrequently, when our prayers are not granted immediately, it is because the Lord is withholding the less in order to bestow the greater. Isn't that a wonderful weapon to have in our full armor of God to really take that quote and to really have it in our arsenal when it comes to shoring up our shield of faith? Knowing, knowing that God has his good and glorifying reasons in so many cases that we just simply cannot see. Knowing that he has his reasons which are good and God glorifying and that I have God. That God loves me so much he gave his only begotten son for me. And the scripture says, if he loved me so much he gave his only begotten son for me, how will he not also with him freely give me all things? Romans 8 and 32. And in that same chapter in Romans 8, it also says God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say all good things. It says he causes all things to work together for good, even the difficult, the hard, the struggle, the bad, the painful. Verses 7 and 8. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and, and you're going there again? <laughs> Jesus' plan, at least from his disciples' perspective, was a little bit flawed. Have you ever had those occasions? You don't have to answer this yes or no. Just keep it to yourself. But have you ever had those occasions where you kind of looked at what God wanted you to do, if you understood what God wanted you to do, and you thought, Really? Seems, but what about, I don't know about this. Remember the walls of Jericho? It must have seemed like a crazy idea to march around those walls and do what God said. And those walls were going to, yeah, really? That's not the way you lay siege to a city. Sometimes God's plan doesn't make a lot of sense from our perspective. They say, you just escaped stoning there. Look in chapter 10 and verse 31 and you'll see that. He just escaped arrest there, chapter 10 and verse 39. He just reached safety and now he's going to go back? Listen, and I can almost see the wheels turning, at least in my head. I'm thinking, okay, if you knew Lazarus was sick when we were there, while you were fleeing, why didn't you stop by and fix things then? We've reached safety over here, now we've got to go back? Lord, that don't make a lot of sense to me. Why don't you just heal him from a distance, Jesus? We know you can do it. You see, again, Jesus knew the plan and intention of God and the timetable of God, and therefore, 
He knew what he was doing. They didn't know, and that's why their apprehension. Catch this. There's only two, very simple. There's only two potential views of any earthly problem. Here they are. Our limited human perception and God's all-seeing heavenly purpose. There you go, two different views. Have you ever been at an airport, you've been flying somewhere and you look out there and you look through the windows, the planes are big, runways are big, big place, drive around, park your car in the parking garage, whatever you do, huge airports, right? And that's our perspective, we see these huge airports, we see, but listen, what happens when you get up in the plane? What happens when you get up at the trajectory of your flight? And you can see a whole lot more than that airport, can't you? You can see whole states. We see our limited human perspective is like being in an airport. Looking out one window, one direction, go, oh. But see, God's perspective is a whole lot different from where he sets. He can see it all. We need not forget that Jesus here saw the whole situation. They had their apprehension because they didn't. Verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus basically said, the reason that you stumble is because you do not see what I see. You do not see the light. You do not understand. You're walking in darkness. You don't, you don't know what's about to happen, but I have the light of knowledge. I know how this is going to turn out. He said, that's why you're apprehensive and stumbling. Our perspective is often clouded by a lack of proper biblical knowledge, Psalm 119, 105, verses 11 and 12. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Can you imagine the disciples' relief? Oh, good, we don't have to go. He's asleep. You know, when somebody's sick, what's one of the things that's required? A lot of rest, right? Get a lot of rest, you get better. Basically the way it's supposed to work. And so they're thinking, okay, so he's ill. Well, Lord, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. Everything's good. We don't have to go. It's all good. Verses 13 through 15. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> you wonder how many times God wants to just take a hold of us, don't you? Say, duh, this is what I'm talking about. Because we sometimes, at least I, a little slow to comprehend what God wants. But he comes around and says, look, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes I wasn't there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Verse 14, I have to wonder if, if Jesus had the thought, are you, are you ever going to get it? But Jesus is patient. And I love the fact he's patient with them, just like he's patient with us. The reason for the two-day delay was for their sakes. And he said, and I'm glad I wasn't there. That's us. That, that on its surface is like whap whap if, you, if you're not knowing what's going on here. I'm glad for your sakes I wasn't there. Why, Jesus? Why? So that he could help them develop their faith to a far greater level than they ever imagined. 
Listen, it wasn't that Jesus didn't love Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That wasn't the case at all. On the contrary, it was precisely because he, agape, loved them so very much that he was going to take advantage of this opportunity right here to create in them a greater faith and a greater love than they had ever known. He was going to take advantage of this opportunity right here to show them the most incredible thing they would ever see in their lives so that they would come to understand he was truly the Son of God. Listen, our faith in, love for, and dedication to God is usually in direct proportion to our understanding of who he really is, the great love he has for us, and the power he possesses. What takes more power? Heal a sick person or to raise somebody who's four days dead? Which takes more? See, Jesus could have healed Lazarus from a distance. He could have, he could have taken care of it. Not, but he wanted to show them something so incredible that their faith and love for him would only grow. He wasn't going to give them the less when he had an opportunity to give them far more. Often with us, it's only when we are allowed to get so far down that we cry out for help because we know it's only God that can save us in this situation that we really begin to realize exactly who he is and all he can do. Remember Gideon? Remember Gideon? Mm. This was a lesson that the disciples needed to learn. Verse 16. And Thomas, who's called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. <laughs> we go back there, they've, they've, gonna, they've sought to stone him and arrest him. Now, I don't know, it depends on who you read. Is the hymn talking about Jesus or Lazarus? It really doesn't make any difference in the overall picture. The overall picture is, Thomas knows they get back there, they're just gonna die. Let's go die with him. This is the same doubting Thomas, of course, as we see in John 20, 24 through 29. And I wonder if Jesus, and I don't know, and, and, and we're never going to, but I wonder if Jesus maybe when, when Thomas said, well, let's go, just die with him. If Jesus just kind of rolled his eyes, <laughs> what would you do? Hey, I mean, I know we're not Jesus, but just kind of. <sighs> Didn't Jesus say later in John 14, how long have I been with you, Philip, and you still don't get it? Mm. Verses 17 through 20. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. I don't know how Martha heard that he was there, but both Martha and Mary's responses in this particular situation are completely in line with their character their individual characters that we saw in Luke 10, 38 through 42. Martha was always kind of the busy, practical one, while Mary was kind of the quiet, reflective one. Verse 21. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How many times 
Is Jesus going to hear that before this actual story comes to an end, this actual account concludes? If only you had dot, dot, dot. Now, did she say it with faith? Did she say it with confidence? Was she accusatory? I don't know. Draw your own conclusion. But it brings to mind for me this thought. Not only how many times was Jesus going to hear this, oh, if you had only dot, 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 in this situation, but how many times did Jesus hear something like that very similar in his public ministry? How many times? I was very grateful for what Eric read during the communion. Set this up very well. How many times would Jesus hear something similar to that? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, come on down from the cross. How many times has God heard that or similar from us? It's where the rubber meets the road, folks. How many times has God heard that or similar from us when we are going through a painful situation and we don't understand what God is doing? If you're really up there, why don't you do something? If you're really God, how did this happen to me? If you're really God, why did you allow this to happen? How many times? Does God hear something similar to, oh, if you had only, or something to that effect. Folks, if, 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 if. You know what? It's not if he is the Christ, but it is precisely because he is the Christ that he is doing for these people that he loved, just as he does for us, far above and beyond, anything we could dream of at times. And he's doing it in such an unimaginable way that, that there's no human conception of it. That's what's going on. Listen, have you ever read a book? Think about this. Have you ever read a book or seen a movie where the plot is so, where there's so much destruction, there's such a terrible situation, you think the author cannot possibly fix all of this? How many of you have ever read ahead to the end chapter to find out how it all turned out in a book or two? Come on, be on. Not a soul in this room, really? I'm seeing a hand or two, okay. What I want you to understand is this. In those situations, the writer or the author usually makes it all come out okay in the end. They knew what they were doing. They knew where the plot was going. They knew how it was going to get fixed, and it's fixed by the end of the book. And what I want you to understand is God is the author of life. He's the writer of the book. He knows that even though there's a death here, even though it's that bad, he's going to fix it. He's going to fix it. They had no clue. He knew. He knew. because he wrote the scriptures. But you see, unlike a book or a movie, this really happened. This was a real account of something that historically happened. Lazarus is dead. There is no way out. He's four days in the tomb. It is over. Now, as we read on, we see Martha had a little faith, but her faith is not full yet. And that's one of the reasons I believe that Jesus is going to take advantage of this opportunity to give her faith a boost. Verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. 
You see, she did not yet realize that he was actually God in the flesh. And this is why I say that. In the Greek, right here in verse 23, the word ask means to beg. To beg. It's like an inferior to a superior. It's like a lowly employee to the president of the company. It's like going in to ask for a raise. It's that type of word. I know that whatever you beg of God, like, like going in to the owner of the company to get a raise, you're far superior. She didn't put Jesus on the same level as God. Didn't quite yet realize that he was God in the flesh. And that's why I say that. Verses 23 and 24. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection, the last day. Don't miss this. Like the woman at the well in John 4. Like the disciples here in, verse, in verses 1 through 15, and like us so often. Jesus is just ever so patient with her, patiently leading her along to a greater faith. Patiently, practically by the hand, just leading her on and helping her incrementally grow in her faith. Not overloading her, but he's just so patient with her. He takes her step by step into an ever-increasing discovery of his deity and his capability. And God does that to us. God takes us slowly and patiently. And sometimes, just like this account here, that path leads through the very heart and soul of the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes it does. It did here. Verses 25 and 6. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me, he shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, I want you to understand, in the Greek, this is emphatic. This is power. It loses something in the translation. The implication here is of, of Jesus in the original language, I and no other. I and no other am no less than God himself. In spite of all the long hours watching your brother die, in spite of the fact that I was not here, and in spite of everything you've suffered through as a result, do you still trust me as God? That's the emphatic power of this passage. Do you still trust me as God? It's forceful. And you know, that's the question all of us must answer completely, conclusively, and continually. After all you've been through, Jesus cries out to you, do you still trust me as God? Because you see, if we don't, we can't get to the point she got to at the end of this, where God could just bless her incredibly. We gotta trust him through everything. Verse 27. But she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Her response, again, in the original language, is just as emphatic. In spite of all she's been through, the implication of her response is, I, on my part, regardless of others, have believed and do accept that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Isn't that beautiful? That's the force and the power of her response in the original language. Because you see, everybody who starts down that road of following Jesus, everybody, 
is usually brought to this, this crossroad or this, this Y in the road. And here's, here's what it is. You, you, everybody's brought to this point. You got two choices. It's either all the way or fall away. It is either completion or condemnation. It is either submission or rejection. Martha made her decision. And after she made her decision, she goes and gets her sister Mary, just like Andrew went and got his brother Simon Peter in John 1. Because when a person comes face to face with the full force of the understanding of who Jesus Christ is, they cannot keep quiet about it. They've got to go tell somebody. Got to go tell somebody. So she goes and she tells her sister. Verses 28 through 30. When she had said these things, she went her way, secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher's come and is calling you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Jesus stays put. And I want you to think about this. He waited there patiently, looking for the best opportunity for a private audience with the other sister he so deeply loved so that he could get her to come to the same understanding. Jesus stayed right there and waited. His patience again. Verses 31 and 2. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Is there an echo in here? <laughs> you wonder if they rehearsed this, right? See, I don't think they rehearsed it, but I think maybe sometimes, like we do, I think maybe they rehashed it. And what I mean by that is, these two sisters, as, as Lazarus is in this predicament he's in, these two sisters must have shared this conversation. Well, if Jesus were here, this one, yeah, well, that's true. Maybe again, well, if Jesus was here, it wouldn't happen. So I don't think they rehearsed it, but they rehashed it. And it comes out. I want you to know that the statement was true. If Jesus had been there, it wouldn't happen. As a matter of fact, if Jesus wanted to heal from a distance, it wouldn't happen. But I also want you to look at what was missed in that process. And don't miss this in your life. What would have happened if Jesus had just healed Lazarus' sickness? If he had given in and given them what they wanted and asked for, he would not have brought God as much glory nor them as much growth in their faith. Is that true? It's very true. If Jesus had given in and given the crowds what they asked for at the cross, you know, sometimes we want God to answer our prayers and we want, him, us, we want him to give us just what we want, but sometimes if God did that, we would have so much less. What if Jesus had honored their request at the cross when they said, come down to the cross? He said, okay, I'm coming now. Where would you be this morning? I'll tell you where you'd be. You'd be lost in your sins and going to hell. Plain and simple. If Jesus had come down off that cross and not died for you. Aren't you glad Jesus did not honor their request to come down? I am. Aren't you glad he knew better than to give in and give them what they asked for? I am. And sometimes it's true with our kids. If we give in and give them what they want, they get so much less than if we wait and give them what we know they need even more. Verse 33. 
Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. I love that phrase. He groaned in the spirit. I've been waiting to get to this point because I really like it. <laughs> the three terms in this text, verse 33, that will give you an idea of the conflict that is raging. This one really loses something in the translation. First off, it says that Mary was weeping. The term there means sobbing. It means almost to the point of hysteria. It's a very strong word. Wailing, out of control, hysterical. But this one, Jesus groaned in the spirit. It's not just simply sorrow or grief. It's not like, oh, it's not what we're talking about. It's not talking about sorrow and grief. It's not talking about simply anger and indignation. But you know what the term literally means? It means to snort like a horse. Literally, Jesus within himself snorted like a horse. What's that got to do with anything? This. You ever watch these medieval shows, maybe jousting, and these, these war horses, and they just, they can't, wait to, they can't wait to go do what they do? Maybe horses pulling at an agricultural fair, and, and, and they're, they're just anxious and jittery just to hear that click behind them to get into the yoke. Maybe a horse in a starting gate at a, at a race, and they, they just can't wait to get going, and they're, they're snorting, and they're anxious, and they're, they're ready to go. Consider that. Jesus literally, in the literal language, snorted like a horse, like a war horse or a race horse. What's a race horse bred for? What's a war horse bred for? That's what they're bred for. That's what they live for. And listen, this is the greatest point. Jesus' whole point in coming to this earth was for one reason. What was it? To defeat death. To beat death. Hebrews chapter 2. The whole point Jesus came and was born into this world was to defeat the power of death. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. And he, like a, like, like a horse just waiting to get out of the gate or get into that fight or get down in that race, he's just waiting to do what he came to do, and that's beat death. I love that picture. It says he was greatly troubled. That means to stir up or shake or shudder. Have you ever gotten so angry that you physically shook? Jesus was that kind of angry. Jesus was that kind of, of ready to do something about this. He knew he had the power. He knew what the whole point of this was. He knew what he was going to do. He just waited to do it. He's so angry at death. Death has taken God's creation. Death from the Garden of Eden when they were cast out. Death has reigned. Satan has used death and it has controlled. It has reigned. And Jesus has had enough. Verse 34. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. It's time for Jesus to get out of the gate and do what he came to do. It's time to defeat death and give life. It is time to send Satan packing to take death with him, and Jesus did. And, and just keep in mind, Jesus didn't ask where they'd laid him because he didn't know. He asked for the benefit of those there, just like he would pray for them later in verse 42. Verse 35. I am sorry that the only thing that this verse is typically remembered for is that it's the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. 
There's so much more to that verse. God cried. God cried because those he loved were hurting so bad. That may be the shortest verse, the Bible, but it's one of the most powerful. You see, God knows our tears and our tossings and our pain, and he shares in our sorrows, Psalm 34, verse 18, Psalm 46, 1 and 2, and so many more. Verses 36 and 7. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? <laughs> Human reasoning resulting in the same foolish conclusion. They simply could not envision what he was about to do. And, and Brother Guy in Wood says, the construction of this particular text in the Greek is designed to require a negative answer. And, and this is kind of what this is about. This question is designed or this statement, this, yeah, this question, is designed to call into question Jesus' power. Well, couldn't he have raised him like he, you know, supposedly opened the eyes of the blind, if, you know, if he's that good? It's meant to have a negative answer. It's ridicule, it's malicious, it's contemptuous, it's sarcastic, it's meant to discredit. Well, couldn't he, you know, couldn't he have just, you know, you know, Jesus. Verses 38 and 9. And Jesus, again groaning in himself like that, that just that horse, just waiting out of the gate and go do what he's here for. Came to the tomb and it was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Question? You ever thought about that question? Or that statement? Take away the stone. Listen, had Jesus turned water into wine? Yeah, not a problem. Could Jesus have turned stones into bread if he had wanted to when he was tempted? Could he? Sure he could have. So the question is this then. He who turned water into wine, fed 5,000 on two fish and five loaves, he who walked on water, couldn't Jesus have taken that stone and just turned it into sand, a pile of sand so that Lazarus could have walked out of the tomb? Could Jesus have done that? Stone, and I say to you, become sand. But he didn't. Why? Why didn't Jesus do that? I'll tell you why. Because true, genuine, biblically defined and required faith always demands full, simple, faithful, and humble obedience. Jesus could have blasted that stone out of existence but it was necessary for them to show their faith when he said to them, move the stone. Full faith in Jesus, no matter how desperate the situation looks, no matter how dark the hour, no matter what you've been through, full faith in Jesus requires obedience to what he said to do. So he tells them to move the stone. You see, faith without works is as dead as Lazarus without Jesus. Verse 39, the latter part. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench. He's been dead four days. 
Did you notice that even though she had emphatically declared that she absolutely believed that he was the resurrection and the life, <laughs> still had no idea what he was capable of or wanted to do for her. Do you suppose we ever do that? We all know Jesus, the Son of God, right? We all absolutely believe in him as Lord, the whole, everything the Bible says. But do you think sometimes, even though we emphatically declare that and we, we live it and we seek to, to preach it and to teach it and to obey it, aren't there still some times that we can't grasp the magnitude of God's love for us and how much he wants to do for us? How he can work things out for us? That's where she was at. Even though she'd said he was Lord, she comes up with, well, you know, he's been dead four days. He's going to really smell bad. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, didn't I say to you, he's reminding her of, of what she had said earlier. Didn't I say to you that if you would believe, you, you'd see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. It, it still requires obedience. Real faith always does. And Jesus lifted up his eyes. And said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. You see what Jesus is doing there? Jesus is still trying to reach those people, the naysayers in the crowd. He is still trying to, to reach out to them, to turn some of them in the crowd around, because we know later some of them in verse 46 would go and report to the Pharisees. They weren't impressed by what he did. But he's still trying to get them all to believe, because if they didn't believe, they couldn't be saved. And if they didn't believe enough to obey, they certainly couldn't. So now he seeks to give them a sign they can't deny. Verse 43. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. And he did. He who had been dead for real for four days just up and walks out of the tomb. I've heard it said, don't know if it's true or not, but I love the, I love the, 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 the power and authority of it. Somebody said many, many years ago, that the reason that Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, was because if he just said, come forth, every dead person for miles would have come forth. I don't know if that's why or not, but I believe he had the power to raise that many dead, don't you, just by a command of his voice? Absolutely. The Bible says he's going to. Verse 44, concluding with this. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. His face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. The miracle is instant and uncontested. The result is immediate and unhindered. The resurrection is total and beyond question. Brethren, Satan cannot keep in the grave those whom the Lord calls forward. Isn't that an awesome truth to know? Isn't that why we do what we do? Satan cannot keep in the grave those whom the Lord commands to come forth. Satan doesn't have that power. Death no longer has that power. Now, if you're standing there and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Stop right there. Freeze time. How quiet do you suppose it was for, for that split second? How quiet do you suppose it was? What do you suppose those people's faces looked like? What do you suppose was going through the minds of everybody there? 
such a wide range it would take too long to, to I, just think about that. that. That stunned silence of that emotional and magnificent moment broken only by the Lord's command for a four days dead guy to come out of the grave. Remember this. This is the same Lord of life, Jesus Christ our Lord, who had said earlier, according to John chapter 5, verses 25 and 28 through 29, this. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Folks, folks listening to this later on or today, Jesus Christ is the one you want at your funeral. He's the one you want there when you take your last breath. How do we ensure that? We ensure that by making sure that he whom we want with us when we die is here with us in our life, in all that we do while we live. And that begins when a person is born again of the water and the spirit into the family of God, Galatians 3, 26 and 7. Because if Jesus Christ truly does not know you, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, that is, if you have not truly, and it's, it's about so much more than just being baptized. That's just the beginning. If you have not, after your birth into the family, spent the time, the time spiritually intimate with Jesus to develop the close family kind of relationship with him the way Mary and Martha and Lazarus had, then he's not going to be there at your death and funeral, at least in the capacity of friend and savior. He's going to be there instead as judge, jury, and executor of an eternal death sentence. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. For all of those who do not know God and have not obeyed the gospel, if you have not obeyed the gospel by being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, become a child of God through your faith, Galatians 3, 26 and 7. You need to do that right now. And if you're somebody who's already done that, but you're not spending every day drawing nearer to Jesus, having that spiritually intimate relationship with him. You need to do that as well, because that's the rest of the story. And if you need the prayers for the church, of the church, to help you with that, because you're just weak and you're struggling, maybe you've gotten a better perspective this morning on some of the things God may be trying to do in your life. If there's any way we can help you, please come right now.